Oh, how delighted I was to hear the rattling of the tambourine as it was getting ready to do its thing. Thank you, choir, for bringing such glorious words to such a glorious experience. I want to begin this morning with the words from Paul's letter to the Colossians, a portion of it. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from all the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. This portion of Paul's letter to the Colossians is believed to be an ancient hymn. Scholars, in reading Paul's letter to the Colossians, notice this portion, starting with verse 15, going through verse 20, changes tone, and some of the prepositions shift. It's markedly different from the other parts of the letter. It's believed to be an ancient Jewish hymn, referring to wisdom, as referenced in Proverbs 8.22. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with the book of Proverbs, but in Proverbs, wisdom is personified as a woman. And here is what we hear in the book of Proverbs, chapter 8.22. The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts long ago. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth, when he had not yet made earth and fields or the world's first bits of soil. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master worker. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the human race. This is the passage that is believed to be referenced in this hymn that we read in Paul's letter to the Colossians. And yet, Paul takes a little bit of liberty and interprets God's wisdom as personified in Jesus, adding little phrases throughout this passage that reference Jesus the Christ as God's wisdom personified. We hear echoes of this in John's Gospel at the very beginning, which we always read on Christmas Day. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yes, Jesus, in the beginning, with God through all time and space, God's wisdom personified. St. Augustine, whose name might relate to some of you, who lived in the mid-300s a long, long time ago, was, re- was in the forefront of giving words to what it meant to be the Christian faith. I like to remember Augustine's life. It can be reassuring to me when I feel overwhelmed by the task at hand. I remember he did all of his writing with a quill. If he wanted duplicates, somebody had to write it out. If anything needed to be sent or received, someone had to carry it. He spoke to crowds that were illiterate, and he was unamplified by electrical sources. 
What a challenge to share the good news in such circumstances. He was fighting heresies which wanted to demoralize or, or, or shrink who Jesus was. There was a lot for him to do. And so I have found great assurance or sustenance or encouragement maybe in his sermons which have been translated into English, crossing over almost 2,000 years to this present day. In John's Gospel particularly, which is my favorite, he talks about Jesus as God's sustained word. He does this whole bit on what words, what happens with words, and he reflects, I think accurately, that they come out of our mouth, they enter into space, they make it to the hearer's ear, and then they dissipate. Perhaps they sit with you if the word lodges somewhere in your being, but otherwise they're here for a moment and they're gone. St. Augustine says that Jesus is God's sustained word. That referring to Jesus as the word of God, as John does in his gospel, John is reminding us that Jesus has come to sustain God's word, to carry it through, through years and years, to give it tangibility and substance so that we might hear the word of God in the life of Jesus. And so I wonder, what is God trying to say to us in the crucifixion? What is God trying to say to us from the cross? We know that without the crucifixion, there could be no resurrection. It doesn't make any sense. It has little value. And yet we have so much shame in our vulnerability. We have so much shame in our perceived failure. We look on Jesus on the cross even now and wonder, how can someone so wonderful suffer so greatly? We feel shame in Jesus' suffering. And indeed, we might want to skip over it. I think there are two things that the church has emphasized in the in this experience of Jesus on the cross, which I actually want to challenge today. So I better get a drink of water. I invite you to make some space to reflect on this. This is not my original thought, but it may be the first time you've heard it. Often when we reflect on Jesus on the cross, we are drawn to reflecting on our sins and our sinfulness. We think about Jesus on the cross as it being about our sin. Perhaps it's because of Luke's gospel telling when he has Jesus saying from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we say, right, we don't know what we do. We're ashamed of our sinfulness. We are ashamed of the pain that can happen to us and others because of our errors, our wrongdoings, the things we do and know and what we don't know that we do. But the telling of the story of the crucifixion from this perspective makes the story about us. We become the subject of this story. We're the ones making the event happen. And we say to ourselves, but it's impossible not to sin. And so what am I supposed to do with the fact that Jesus is on the cross? If Jesus is there because of my sins or the sins of you or the sins of them, what are we supposed to do with this? And I do wonder about that question. Because God is the subject, always the subject. God begins the story. God ends the story. 
whom we know from Jesus' life that he wasn't bothered by sin. Yes, he called people out on it, but he didn't recoil from their sinfulness. Think of all the people that he touched. When the Pharisees and the Sadducees would challenge him and say, what are you doing eating with sinners, eating with sinners, taking his fingers with his bread and dipping it in the same food that they were dipping their fingers and their bread in. Jesus knows we're sinners. He doesn't make it about us. It's about God's mercy. He looks on the sinfulness of humanity with compassion. The other way in which we often read or experience or reflect on the crucifixion is with this idea of God the Father needing an offering. But this doesn't resonate either with what we know in Jesus. God is not a beast that needs to be fed with some sort of sacrifice. That's not what we see. Not in Jesus' telling of God in Matthew chapter 9, he says to those that are listening, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call not the righteous but the sinners. That's Matthew's gospel. Matthew was written for a Jewish audience. And again, in chapter 12 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus is recounting God's words in the Hebrew scriptures, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Indeed, in Micah, the prophet Micah's words we hear in chapter 6, verse 8, he has told you, O mortal, what is required of you. He has told you what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Those are the prophet's words. Or even the prophet Isaiah, which we read in this passage in chapter 58, verses 1 through 12. We read this in, uh, good, in um, Ash Wednesday. We read it on All Saints Day in Evensong, where God is challenging those who are righteous in what they are doing with their worship. He says to them, look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Do you think this is what I want? Do you think I want you to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? No, the prophet says. God has this request of us. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice. To undo the thongs of the yoke to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then, God says, then, God says through the prophet, then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and God will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the, new, in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually 
and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruin shall be built. You shall raise up the foundation of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to live in. I know these are a lot of words, folks. I know Isaiah is telling us a lot of images, and I'm adding scripture onto the scripture we've already read, but we need to hear God's call to us from the cross. I want us to look at another way of considering Jesus' crucifixion, which doesn't center us in our sinfulness or make God the Father into a righteous beast. And the reason I'm excited to share this with you, the reason I believe this is good news, is because it gives us a new way of considering the crucifixion. It shows us God's mercy. And that, as the psalmist says, weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Furthermore, I believe that looking at the cross from a different perspective will help you see God's presence over these last few harrowing years, which seem unrelenting. We know Jesus was on the cross because people turned against him, named him a criminal, and treated him like one. We know in him that there is pain and suffering that just happens. We see this in the world. The Lost Boys of Sudan documentary brings this loud and clear. There is pain and suffering that happens in the world. And Jesus in his life and in his death demonstrates his knowledge of this all along. For we try to alleviate and eliminate suffering, don't we? We ask, what happened there that caused such suffering? We'll go to therapy and say, am I doing something? Well, maybe you are to bring about that suffering. And then also there is just pain and suffering. It reminds me of the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. The wisdom to know the difference. How does the word of God incarnate in Jesus help us know the difference? You've heard, I'm sure, and maybe resonate with this idea of compassion fatigue from these many years. We've heard so many real life stories of war, refugees, climate crisis, societal systems which actually promote inequities. These stories have been told in an effort perhaps to remind us of one another's humanity, but also, I think, to motivate us to do something. I serve on the reparations task force of our diocese, and one of the things that keeps coming up is, how can we help people recognize the need for reparations? The Diocese of Massachusetts has committed several million dollars for reparations. The Diocese of Virginia, the same. The Diocese of Maryland did it years ago. And there's been a conversation about maybe we need to tell people stories about how it is that black Americans continue to suffer inequities in our nation. But then we go back and forth and say we don't need to have people relive their trauma in order to try to convince someone else that it's real, the inequities. 
Indeed, sometimes we can enter into people's stories and become traumatized by their trauma. By that, I mean feel it in our bones. Indeed, we are inclined to do this. And maybe that's why people were a little hesitant about coming to the Encouraging Justice series. We had about, I don't know, eight to 12 of us on a weekly basis. I mean, each of our sessions, we, we met four times. And we reflected on it at the end of this time and said maybe people are hesitant to know about the injustices of the world. Perhaps it feels too burdensome, overwhelming. And yet what do we do as Christian people? For we need to know the price the indigenous people of this land paid and still pay for the establishment of the United States of America. We need to know how our political system is established and even exploited for the achievement of government power. We need to know how anti-blackness informed the financial market and the promotion of single-family home ownership. We need to know how human trafficking happens in our nation. Yet we look on these and we say, where are you, Lord? Where is your kingship? We turn to one another and say, perhaps we have to wait till later, maybe in heaven, because this surely isn't it. We feel the desire to protect ourselves from pain and suffering. And for many people, especially people who identify or are perceived as white people, they want to return, we want to return to the desire to normal means so that we don't have to notice the dimensions and complexity of pain and suffering in the world. But I think we're approaching the suffering wrongly. We don't have to enter into people's stories and become traumatized by their trauma. There's another way to approach the suffering and pain in this world. Brene Brown, in her podcast, Unlocking Us, one of her episodes on Atlas of the Heart, a recent publication of hers in this last year, part one of two parts, brings up this topic of compassion fatigue, recognizing the reality that people have pulled back from the service industry jobs because it is so emotionally exhausting. They're burned out. She and the people she's interviewing discuss whether we've named this wrong. They want to consider, and based on her book and the research someone else did that's in the book, Atlas of the Heart, she highlights this description of that feeling. Empathic distress fatigue. It's when we don't just hear the story, but we insert ourselves into the story. We over-identify with the pain of the other, and we take their agony into ourselves. This immobilizes all of us. She reminds us, and I wrote down this quote, that we can only be with people in their deep grief or pain when we connect with their humanity, not their trauma. How is it that we can connect with one another's humanity? Often when we look at Jesus on the cross, we resonate with his trauma. We think that in order to motivate ourselves to notice his abundant love for us, we need to feel his agony on the cross. Indeed, the church has emphasized this for a long time. Mel Gibson's film definitely did this. He wanted you to feel the thorns in his head. Feel the nails in his hands and feet. But what's the point of feeling that? Is it to motivate us to do something? Is it to bring us to a place where we say, I'm sorry? 
Or are we supposed to be able to say, I'm worthless? What can God do with people who are at such a place of despondency? Brene Brown said, we can only be with people in their deep grief or pain when we connect with their humanity, not their trauma. And so what happens when we look at Jesus in his humanity on the cross? Perhaps what we can then begin to ask is, this can happen? It can happen to someone who literally did nothing wrong? Can someone be innocent and yet be tortured? Can someone be faithful and yet have people betray them? Can someone have friends who turn into enemies? What's the answer? Yes. And that's what Jesus says from the cross. Yes. There is definite suffering, undeserved and unjustified, and it happens to people. And Jesus says from the cross, in my mercy, I want to tell you something. Jesus says from the cross, as you reflect on your vulnerability of being human, I want to tell you something. Jesus says from the cross, as you sit with the shame of your own powerlessness in certain situations, I want to tell you something. You need not be afraid of your own destruction. Death does not have the last word. What looks and feels bad can be transformed by God for good. You don't see the whole picture. Suffering will not destroy you. Love, merciful and abundant love, overcomes the power of evil. This is what Jesus says from the cross. When we look at Jesus on the cross and relate to his humanity there, we might ask, am I going to have occasions where I feel trapped? misunderstood? Where there will be moments in my life where I'm conscious of my own vulnerability, unable to defend myself? Will there be times when people look on me in shame? Will they measure and interpret my suffering as failure? Will they be so afraid of suffering that they distance themselves from witnessing my own pain? What's the answer? Jesus says, yes. As the fully human one, I came to show you that I am with you in it all. And so now we reflect on the all. There's a lot of all. Can you see God's presence in these last few harrowing years? These years of pain, which seem unrelenting, Jesus is in the pain saying, hold on to me. Jesus' lordship is one which transforms the pain of humanity. Through his death on the cross, we see that we need not be afraid of our own destruction, that death does not have the last word, that what looks and feels bad can be transformed by God into good. We see that we don't see the whole picture. We see that suffering will not destroy us and that love, merciful and abundant love, God's love, 
overcomes the power of evil. He demonstrates this in the resurrection, which couldn't have happened without the crucifixion. And the resurrection allows us, allows us as nutmeggers in 2022, in this land which was named by our ancestors as New England, it allows us to feel the lordship of Jesus over all. Let us enter into the mercy of God so that we might be strengthened to be with one another in the pain and grief of humanity. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the head of this body, the church, reveals God's mercy in us and through us, around us, and over us. Amen.